Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Wonky Show. The NSS is sort of on, but sort of off. Students are returning to campus, but they might not be back for Christmas. There's UCAS data, and we chat students, students' unions, and politics. It's all coming up. You know, if if people do, if people follow the rules laid out by Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon and others between now and Christmas, then there'll be you know much less worry when Christmas comes around about large numbers of people going home. But if um, you know if we we continue to see lots of instances of um, uh, questionable behaviour. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson, still self-isolating up here in the attic, but here to help us make sense of everything going on, as usual, we have two fabulous guests. In Chepstow, Jenny Shaw is Student Experience Director at Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week? Well, I'm going to have to say it was uh, launching our own podcast. It's something that's definitely been on my bucket list and and actually just just really nice to uh, be offering something new into the, the world of podcasts, so that was very exciting. Excellent, and, and I have heard episode one, you should, you should definitely give it a listen, fascinating stuff. And in Buckinghamshire, Nick Hillman is Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. Nick, your highlight of the week? Well, I think um, one of it was actually seeing universities go back. I know some had already gone back, but seeing uh, people getting on with their lives. I was in Oxford last weekend and saw lots of people emptying their cars and you know starting their lives as students, and that was exciting. But my personal highlight is I finally ordered a comfortable chair to work from in my home <laughs> office. I sit on a stool and it's uh, rather doing me in. Excellent. So, yes, we start this week uh, with the National Student Survey, actually. Nick, what's been going on here? Well, (laughs) yeah, good question. So, um, the Office for Students has announced that the National Student Survey will definitely be taking place this academic year. (laughs) Or or will it? (laughs) Or will it? Well, it will be taking place, but the marketing of it to students uh, won't be required. And we don't know what data from it will end up being published, because this is where it bashes into the review that the government has insisted much must happen uh, of the national student survey so it's going to be a very odd year but as uh, as as you've proven a wonky too much money has already changed hands between uh, the OFS uh, and the pollsters uh, by all accounts for, for you know to put the blocks on it this year um, and I actually think I'm actually pleased it's going ahead this year because uh, I th- I think you know you can never know too much about how what students are thinking and of course they may be thinking different things this year uh, given the crisis we're all living through than uh, in a normal year you know the NSS is very far from perfect I'm not sure anybody loves it the government certainly doesn't love it student unions don't love it Uh, those of us uh, working in policy don't love it because of the things it excludes you know I have always thought it's outrageous that our own survey with advanced HE is the only robust source of contact hours and uh, workload data for example, um, and some people think we're on the cusp of the end of the NSS because this review is happening. I, I'm not sure about that. I think we need the sort of information it provides. Uh, and I suspect the government will also want uh, to continue having some information 
Um, one, one final point, by the way, because we put together the, our own survey every year, the Student Academic Experience Survey with Advance HE. And the single toughest thing we do every year is deciding how much of it must be exactly the same from year to year and how much of it should change because you want consistency to make those year-on-year comparisons but you also want change because you want to inject something topical and new and fresh Um, and that balance between continuity and change is the toughest thing we wrestle with every year when we put the questions together. Jenny, I, uh, I, 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 uh, one of the things I used to do is run simulation exercises for students' union officers in training, and we used to give them a, a sort of red herring, which was the old NSS poster competition. So I am devastated that the marketing isn't going to be uh, big this year for NSS. But, you know, seriously, should, should, should we worry about a kind of significant scaling back of, of our only major source of intel into the student experience? Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking around this a lot over the last few days and uh, I I just I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer any of these questions until we come to some kind of consensus if that's possible about what universities are for and that's going back to some you know that's going back to David Watson and, and some of his work but you know what what is it we value what what's it supposed to do what are the outputs supposed to be because unless we can have that conversation I, I don't think we can do things like you know weigh um, your graduate earnings after five years, ten years, against whether students liked their course—it's it's just impossible to understand how much weight you should give to each. Um, and and it'll also open up some of the questions about what we what we don't ask. So you know, we ask people what they earn after they graduate, but we don't, as far as I know, ask them if they're happy with what they earn and you know if they still think that their course was worth it. Um, and that's all got to be balanced, of course, against, you know, what it is the country needs and, and what it's going to take to, to you know, develop us now as a, a somewhat more independent nation. Um, and, you know, do we need certain subjects more than others? But um, as I think as a principle, um, you know, the student voice is absolutely essential. And I know the point was well made at, at The Secret Life of Students that all universities anyway spend a lot of time listening to students and, and getting the student voice. But um, the, the place that it should take within, you know, the, the national policy making depends on the answer to those questions. Yeah, I mean, Nick, Jenny makes a good point about the, the, the sort of metrics that we end up up left with and and you know certainly you know a, a number of people me included were saying you know what on earth does this do to the to, to the TEF you know we've got a we've got a TEF review that's unpublished but the TEF at the moment has some metrics in it doesn't this review effectively take the NSS out of the TEF I think that's a really powerful point and um joe johnson's very interesting on this who of course was the minister who implemented the tef he you know he he always warns the sector be careful what you wish for he says if you get rid of some of the data that currently exists uh, and policymakers have less rich data to p- draw upon then things like the earnings data and the leo data may end up being more important and some of this and i don't mean this pejoratively but some of the sort of softer data uh, softer issues covered by things like the nss uh, you know disappear uh, and so even though the nss is very far from perfect and i i 100 agree with jenny that we need more sort of longitudinal information about after study as well um, we need to you know 
as I say, be careful what we wish for, because we could end up in a worse position rather than a better position. And, and this review is, a, you know, it's a bit of a knife edge. Jenny, I remember, I mean, it must be almost a year ago to the day that, um, you know, you were doing, launching that uh, stuff, actually in conjunction with Happy, actually, funnily enough, that you're both on, uh, on um, kind of student experience and, and, and reflecting on aspects of belonging and so on. And, what, and one of the things I remember saying at your launch was that we'd worked out that there was this really strong correlation between one of the questions no one ever looks at in NSS which is on feeling part of a community of staff and students and belonging and 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 we lose you know we might lose league tables and we might lose some of this stuff in the TEF but we also lose some really interesting other things about free text comments that most of us can never see and individual stories about departments and and, and universities if we lose all the questions and the whole survey don't we? Yeah absolutely I mean just on that belonging point there's I think there's plenty of of data not not just from that survey but from other people's studies as well including you know quantitative studies that that belonging is quite fundamental to the ability to to have a good university experience to study to stay at university and so on but I think as a wider point I, I will go back to what I said that that universities are and I've seen increasingly as well using you know some of this more qualitative data really trying to understand the the lived experience of students in order to inform what they do as institutions um, that as to the role that that plays in in national policy making well I think that's a conversation worth having um, because there is a richness to that there is there are things that you can discover about the student experience that are absolutely not apparent from from the numbers um, so I, I think that's a debate worth having one, one of the things I remember from both our big bits of work uh, with Unite including the one we launched last year is how important that interface between school and higher education is um, and it may be doubly important this year. Schools know a lot about young people and obviously a way for universities to access young people. And yet that interface has all sorts of new obstacles this year. Uh, it's tougher for students to go into universities to talk about what university life's really like, for example. Um, and, and I think that's an yet another area we need to give even more thought to this year than normal. Right. Great. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Harrison. I'm a reader and uh, in the School of Education and Director of Education at the Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues at the University of Birmingham. Uh, our recent article focused on a newly developed framework uh, called Character Education Universities, a framework for flourishing. We developed this framework in consultation with higher education specialists in the UK and around the world and published it in partnership with the Oxford Character Project. In the framework, we argue that it's a place for more explicit character education in universities with a particular focus on development of practical wisdom in students. The framework, we think, offers a tangible and accessible advice to help higher education structure, articulate and realise their commitment to develop so-called graduate attributes in their students. In the article, we suggest that there is a character gap in higher education between how we measure success and how we expect students to develop as part of their wider university experience. We think we need to address this gap both during students' time with us, but also in our admissions policies and procedures. We actually think helping students to develop character and practical wisdom is essential to helping them flourish in the future, but it should also be part of the wider civic responsibility of universities to contribute to societal flourishing. Hi, I'm Paul Ashwin. Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster University and Deputy Director of the Centre for Global Higher Education. My blog for Wonky is focused on the importance of developing an inclusive, transformative higher education system rather than an elitist reproductive one. It draws on my latest book, 
Transforming University Education, a manifesto. Both the wonky blog and the book highlight the particular role that higher education plays in introducing students to collective bodies of knowledge that can transform their sense of who they are and what they can do in the world. To realise this transformative potential, higher education needs to have stronger connections to other parts of the higher other parts of the education system and to wider society. Now, next up, the Prime Minister says we've reached a perilous turning point in the UK's struggle to contain COVID-19. I don't know about you, but I have definitely kind of felt it this week in terms of the, you know, the six month long haul slog of the whole thing. And I think lots of other people around the sector have too. Uh, And there's even some suggestion that students now they're at university won't be allowed to go home for Christmas. Jenny, explain what's going on here. Well, um, I think I think we all can see from from the data that we're at the start of the uh, the second wave, the second wave that was talked about, but we all hoped wouldn't happen. Uh, and of course, new measures are being put in place. And and this time round, I, th- I think because I guess we're a little bit more on the front foot, there is a strong push to prioritise education, uh, to keep schools open, to keep universities open. Um, and there are going to be these several tiers of blended learning that universities are able to adopt. Um, there is a recognition, I think, based on the scientific evidence that effect- infections across the student body are, to students, relatively low risk. I say relatively, but actually the, the, they do carry a, a risk to others, particularly elderly relatives, but also potentially to teaching and support staff as well. So, um this is really an exercise, I think, in balancing the needs of many different groups as part of that public health uh, approach to this this pandemic. Um, just in practical terms, for universities and accommodation providers, it's just about taking the plans you had and being incredibly adaptable on almost a daily basis, uh, responding really quickly to new information and trying just within that to, to give the best possible student experience in a year which is actually pretty rubbish for all of us. Nick, Nick, you, um, you, you, you gave a quote yesterday to the press that appears to have sort of, you know, become a kind of runaway train around this Christmas issue. Yes, uh, yes, that's true. Um, so this was a story based on uh, minutes from the SAGE Committee and the SAGE Committee have been clear actually for a good few weeks that they worry more about the end of term than the beginning of term and yet here we are at the beginning of term and we're seeing some pretty hefty outbreaks at, uh, at some universities universities already. Uh, And what they worry about is they say young people, you know, will get the uh, uh, virus during term. Some of them may not even have any clear symptoms. And then they'll fan out at the end of term back home and take the virus with them, perhaps to elderly parents or vulnerable communities. Um, Now, you and your colleagues at Wonky, of course, rightly have pointed out many, many times that, you know, that is not the experience of every student. Some students go home on a daily basis or or, or very frequently. But, um, But, you know, I think Sage have a point here. And one of the key things is uh, what happens at Christmas is partly determined by what happens between now and Christmas. You know, if if people do, if people follow the rules laid out by Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon and others between now and Christmas, then there'll be, you know, much less worry when Christmas comes around about large numbers of people going home. But if, um, you know, if we, we continue to see lots of instances of um, uh, questionable behaviour, you know, there, there will be more people in campus over Christmas than normal. And there's always some. I mean, there's always some, you know, uh, care leavers, estranged students, international students. Um, so, you know, I think it's just I've, I've got it in the neck on Twitter for, for, for being quoted in that article. But I think it's just common sense that there is a high likelihood that there'll be more students in student accommodation over Christmas, Christmas this year than normal. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating, I think, because because the, the 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 actual Sage paper that the Sage minutes refer to had this theory that said if community infection rates are low when students go to university, then what university will do is very slowly across the course of term sort of amplify infection, and then you got a problem at the end of term. I, I mean, it's clear that Sage didn't predict that we'd suddenly have this kind of big spike in community general, you know, infection uh, in sort of early to mid. September and of course yes you know the other thing you point out Nick is that um, Sage appears to believe that there are only two sorts of students there's a commuter student and then there's you know the kind of border who only goes home at Christmas when lots of people would tell us and we probably need data on this but lots of people would tell us that lots of students kind of go home every weekend Jenny the thing I'm really fascinated about across the course of the week is halls obviously there have been a number of outbreak stories all of which seem to be centred around halls of residence is it kind of mildly inevitable that we're going to have to be thinking about and coping with and being clearer about households within halls. Uh, you know, what's your sense? Because, you, you know, you, you're definitely a kind of, you know, an expert on the whole stuff. Yeah, so ev- everyone has made their agreements with students coming in as, as to, you know, what the rules are, that, that information is being very clearly updated. So I think there is a clarity uh, about what what's allowable and what's permissible and uh, how that's all going to work. Um I know that student parties are getting quite a lot of airtime, and there are parties. Um, but actually, even a, even a big party of maybe 200 students is quite a small proportion of students. But of course, it does have a disproportionate effect. So I think that's very front of mind for those operating student accommodation at the moment, and uh, you know how how they are well managed. But I think the clarity is there. Uh, one um, w- one thing I'm really struck by is obviously the media coverage, as you would expect and i'm not blaming journalists it's it's where the interest is but it's on the negative stuff you know the big parties and the the uh, egregious behavior and people letting their hair down when they're away from home for the first time but there are also instances of really good behavior i mean northumbria university's just given out some awards to some students who've been acting really neighborly over the if that's a word uh, over the summer um you know to their vulnerable neighbors students who are in residence over the summer uh, who are acting in a really community-minded and civic way and i've heard that from other universities as well uh, and, you know, there is a real op- opportunity here for students to get to know their neighbours and to get involved in their local communities by, you know, doing the shopping for their neighbour or, or just keeping an eye on their neighbour. Uh, and there's some good instances as well as some bad instances. Um, and the other slightly uh, maybe counterintuitive thing that I think we need to remember is some people assume the answer is universities should just shut all their bars and cafes and, and, and social spaces. Um, but actually, that encourages people to go out and drink in the pubs with the locals uh, uh, uh you know p- people do need some places to go to and get a cup of coffee and whatever it might be and and, and we mustn't blame universities for making tough decisions uh, when they decide to keep places open on campus because it may well be a help to the local community rather than a hindrance yeah and uh, i mean this that that has been i think and i'm not sure i necessarily blame universities because you know even if you're balanced in a kind of statement or an interview the press will pick up the you know the authoritarian stuff but there has been a lot of sort of authoritarian mood music hasn't there around crackdowns and so on um and you know my, my sense is that the more we threaten students either nationally or institutionally with kind of fines and discipline the less likely it is they'll get a test and then the less likely it is they'll be honest with 
with tracing services. And I noticed one university this morning has sort of published a statement saying, look, if you act, if, if, if you're honest with testing and tracing, there's a complete amnesty on all of these other things we've we've threatened with. I mean, what what in, in the grand scheme of things, Nick, in the, in the kind of historical, you know, you've done a lot on in loco parentis and all of that kind of stuff. What's your sense of where the relationship is between students and their institutions and how that might be changing very rapidly? Well, of course, years ago, decades ago, most uh, young students weren't legally adults. So it's very clear what the relationship was. And then the relationship got looser and looser and looser. Uh, and I think in recent years, partly because of tuition fees and uh, other things, parents are taking a much deeper involvement in in the lives of their children when they're aware of universities. And I think that's having a real impact. And then the pandemic comes along and sort of emphasizes all of that. Um, but ultimately, of course, I, I you know, I, you're right about authoritarianism seeming unpalatable but some of it is simply reminding students that they do have a set of rights uh, and also responsibilities uh, when they become a student and some of those responsibilities are to the institution and some of them are to their fellow students and some of this is about you know frankly if you've got five people living in a flat and one person is being you know an idiot uh, and just breaking all the rules I, I actually think what we'll see forget the legal stuff i actually think what we'll see is peer pressure i think we'll see students um putting pressure on other students just saying look you're putting all of us at risk and that's just not fair now jenny i've got a fun moral sort of game of scruples for for both you and nick to play oh, which is a sort of <laughs> <laughs> Thanks and, uh, and i've not and I've, I've not warned them listeners i've not warned them so um you know the stuff about households and obviously, you know, people are in a household and in halls you have to sort of draw a line around, you know, which rooms you're in a household with and so on. Uh, in the local lockdown areas and in Scotland and potentially across England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland in a few weeks, there will be a rule that says you can't visit another household indoors because of household transmission. Now, here's the question I think that's interesting from a student point of view. Is it better morally and in terms of health to prevent students from visiting another household, i.e. going home at the weekend, because that would be another household? Or is it better to say, no, a bit like when you vote, you can visit another household, because if not, we're trapping students who might depend on going home at the weekend, who might need to escape their household. We're trapping them until Christmas, and that could be devastating for their mental health, particularly for marginalised students. So if you were setting the rules around whether you're allowed to visit another household or not, would you allow them to visit their home or not? Gosh, that's that's (laughs) isn't it? I think, but I think it's... The principle that we saw at the start of the pandemic as well about what's what's the greater harm, because um, certainly when we were looking at our student welfare service and working with the universities on theirs as well, you know, it, it, it was, uh, yeah, OK, we can't we can't meet with a student face to face. However, um, if if the, there would be a greater harm from not doing that, then we will. And I think that same principle applies that actually if the greater harm to to that that student would be uh, you know and and balancing the, the you know the, the what might be the impact on others if if there would be a greater harm for that student not going home then you know maybe that sh- student should go home so i think that's that's would be the way i think to to approach that ethical dilemma it's tricky isn't it nick well it, it it is and i look i agree with jenny and in fact i've learned a lot on these sort of issues from jenny over the years i think the the challenge for policy is you know, you need a flexible system like that to respond to people's unique circumstances. Because we're not talking about 
two million plus students. We're talking about two million plus individuals who come from different backgrounds and have different needs and different wants. Um, but the difficulty in policy terms is then interpreting that into a clear set of rules for people to follow. And I must say, I mean, I, you know, I watch this stuff closely and I'm, I'm really confused. It's hard work, rules, isn't it? It's really hard yeah. work. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it is really hard work. And we all come from different places. You know, I, I, uh, I don't recommend this to anyone. I, I sadly was sent away to boarding school at the age of eight. So when I got to university at 18, being away from home, seems to be entirely natural and the idea of going home a weekend seems to be entirely odd but of course for other students uh, from very very different sorts of backgrounds the opposite would seem very odd staying at university and never going home would seem very odd so we have to you know we have to respond to the rhythms of people's individual lives well uh, at the time of recording uh, we're still not clear either in terms of guidance or legally what the situation is around uh, students going in and out of households in in Scotland or indeed in, in England or Wales local lockdown areas but hopefully by the time you listen, uh, we will have some clarity. And if nor, there is nor Northern post, Ireland, I mean, nor Northern uh, Ireland, Arlene yeah. Frost has made comments on this, and they're not clear either. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's and, and just to say, it's fascinating in Northern Ireland, isn't it? Because a massive proportion of students go home at the weekend, but live in Belfast. Fast, absolutely fascinating. A really big issue, though. I did. Um, I actually did a, a phone-in program on uh, Northern Ireland on BBC One last night, and and it, you know it goes very deep this issue there uh, especially probably at the university you know at Ulster University where they've got lots of local yeah. locally rooted students smashing right now every week on the podcast we're delving deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe here's the hidden history of HE so the ending of the binary line in 1992 was more than just changing the names of polytechnics the sector needed to come together which meant equalizing the funding of the different parties involved in that there were two funding councils, PCFC and the USC, and they issued a set of joint circulars from a joint working party trying to work out the problems of how to bring the sector together. So one of those that they issued in April 1992 set out a series of challenges for this new sector. The two councils said institutions need a sufficient degree of financial and academic stability to be able to plan and manage effectively. On the other hand, stability should not be achieved at the cost of ossification within the system. They wanted a dynamic sector. The government was very keen on the polytechnics, bringing the ability to expand quickly to the universities. And they proposed a core plus margin system so that the funding could slowly move together over time. They also have um, an issue that we'll come back to uh, in future ones of these, where they talked about quality. They were quite clear that the funding methodology should promote quality. And so they proposed two methods. Either that you should give more results, either through increased numbers of funded places or through a funding premium, to those institutions assessed at providing high quality teaching and learning in particular subject categories. A question that still bedevils us. Or, and here's another one that looks forward uh, to the current day, institutions with provision in particular academic subject categories assessed to be of unacceptable or verging on an unacceptable level of quality should be warned of a possible withdrawal of support but given time before funding is withdrawn to bring the quality up to an acceptable level. So low value courses, um, we were there trying to work out what they were in 1992. Government thought, or through its funding council, that these externally assessed high quality ratings, a bit like a TEF I suppose, uh, irrespective of whether they attract additional places or funding, uh, so like a TEF, are likely to be a valuable guide to potential students and their advisors. The accolade should itself be a reward unlikely to be a bit like the TEF then. Funding was stable, but did not keep place with inflation. 
schemes allow fees-only recruitment, uh, and it took the deering and then um, the, the settlement after the BEP report to sort out the funding a bit. Although funding was to be fair across different types of institutions, the funding body could choose different premiums to favour certain HEIs. The removal of college fees from uh, those places that had a collegiate structure, obviously aimed at two universities, resulted in an exciting historic building premium, money for buildings built before 1914, which seemed to favour two universities in particular. Now then, new analysis published by UCAS shows the number of students accepted onto full-time undergraduate courses is... Well, Nick... What is it? <laughs> uh, well, it's a positive, uh, positive story. So new data from UCAS, um, uh, you know, pretty much everything is up except for EU students. And I think we all know the big B word is, is, is the barrier uh, there. And also, you know, the, there was a long period of uncertainty over what fees they would pay. Um, but essentially, it's good news. So, for example, 28,000 uh, 18-year-olds from the most disadvantaged backgrounds accepted, which is up uh, 8%, um, a record 516,000 um, applicants across the UK with a confirmed place, which is up 4%. Um, uh, deferrals haven't exploded as many people expected. Um, but also, you do still need to drive under the data and have a closer look. So, uh, for example... Um, one uh, interesting thing is, although the headline uh, figure is all about the good number, positive story on disadvantaged students, if you're from quintile one, you're still half as likely to go to higher education as if you're from quintile five. So the gap might be getting smaller, but it is still uh, enormous. Um, and the other interesting thing, of course, is the non EU international student numbers, which I don't think anybody predicted would be up the way they are, up 9%. But there's a difference between them being up 9% and 9% more people arriving and staying the course because they've got to get on a plane, got to have their visa sorted out. They've got to uh, uh, be happy with the education they receive when they get here. So there's still this question mark over whether, uh, in reality, quite as many international students will come as the UCAS data suggests. And of course, UCAS mainly looking at undergraduate students and a lot of the internationals are postgraduates. And there's some question marks there. Yeah, Jenny, what did you pick out from the numbers? Well, I, I think probably quite similar to Nick that, you know, lovely numbers. I mean, particularly in terms of disadvantaged students in, in any normal year, this, this would be a cause for huge celebration. But of course, it's not a normal year. But I do think that there's going to be quite a lot to learn. Um, from you know what's happened so far, how how this has come about, um, there might be less to learn, I suspect, um, in terms of the impact that actually has uh, on students in universities, because you know the the context, as we say, is is not normal. But it, it does you know make us reflect on things like dare I say it, contextual admissions, um, and and I, I do tend to bang on about this because I was involved in some of the early research around it. But uh, you know the A levels were not the same as you. Uh, and people got into universities that maybe in a normal year the, their grades would not have allowed them to do so and uh, what does that mean does does you know is, is that a fair way to go about things um, does it take into account their context um, I'm I, I think there's a, a, 
a good research-based case to be made for contextual admissions, but of course your mileage may vary. And of course, there's been a pause, hasn't there, on these admissions reviews we've been expecting, which might slow down that conversation, sadly. Because of course, UCAS are about admissions and enrolments and entry statistics and a very good job they do. But uh, what I worry about is dropout rates this year, um, and we won't know the hard data on that for quite some time. But if you haven't done any academic work or not much since March, you're going to struggle potentially academically. Uh, If you um, can't get that part-time job that was going to help you pay your rent, you might struggle financially. And if you don't get on brilliantly well with the people in your accommodation bubble, you might struggle socially. Those are all really big risk factors. And if you have more than one of them, you know, staying the course will be really tough. And and so uh, it's really hard for universities to reach people, um, you know, give them the support they need and spend the money they need to spend on this, uh, uh, you know, Dis- disincentivizing people from dropping out but it's going to be more important than ever this year nick what i was going to ask you was so so normally in the summer and actually it always used to come out the same week as the higher education festival that but that buckingham ran um we would get some data on the predictions of the cost of the loan system for the year ahead right and that's been delayed for all sorts of reasons but it strikes me that lots and lots more students going in has all sorts of impacts, one of which is it's bloody expensive for the Treasury, potentially. Yeah, it's more expensive than DfE were predicting. And what, you know, what do we know? We know that we we now might not get a, an auger review response this autumn because we don't have a CSR, we only have a budget. Suddenly, the cost of the system is, you know, more expensive than it was. I thought it was fascinating that Chris Husbands off of Sheffield Hallam was was suggesting that the loan system becomes more benign when actually people are, to some extent, blaming Theresa May's fiddling with the repayment threshold when she launched Augur that made it more expensive. You know, what does this do in that kind of wider set of politics around the cost of the system? Well, and of course, the cost of the system has gone up uh, for another reason. Well, it hasn't really gone up, but it looks like it's gone up for another reason which is the way it's scored yeah, the fiscal in the, illusion. In the numbers yeah, yeah, yeah. so um the treasury i'm sure are very worried about spending on uh, the loan book and the write-off costs just as they're very worried about the cost of all sorts of other things at the moment um but i think there's a couple of points to bear in mind the, the first is of course these people who are going to university in greater numbers than ever before uh could very likely be a cost to the taxpayer even if they weren't going to higher education so both in the short term and definitely in the long term because you know where are the jobs they would be getting if they weren't entering higher education and if instead they were getting a big blank space on their cv uh you know they'd probably be have a lifelong uh, negative impact on their wages and also on ultimately how much tax they pay back to the treasury so we have to take a long-term view um but i think you're right theresa may's decision to raise the threshold at the conservative party conference uh, whenever it was a few years ago was an incredibly expensive decision uh which didn't even win her that many positive headlines at the time <laughs> well no one noticed because it was when she lost her voice and the letters fell down <laughs> yeah uh, and that comedian interrupted her as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and um, so, uh, you know, and so I think we could likely see some rowing back on all of that, actually, because there are two ways to save money uh, from that budget. One is to send fewer people to higher education or, or in three ways, actually, because you could also root out the so-called low value courses. Um, very, very difficult thing to do in practice. Um, and, and the other way is you change the repayment uh, terms. And I, I think we could very well see changes to the repayment terms in the future. And 
and you know what i i i i think that is a reasonable um thing for the treasury to look at and unpopular but reasonable because for me the number of places available and keeping student number caps off is even more important than precisely uh, uh whether the, what the threshold is now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david carnahan Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? Like the iron law of geometric progression, but for HE data. In an article this week, I looked for a correlation between unexplained firsts and two ones and better than benchmark NSS results. I didn't find it, but I did get a bit of pushback that I should be looking at the traditional, that is, teaching institution question 27 satisfaction NSS measure, rather than messing about with the benchmarks. So, straight ahead, student satisfaction against grade inflation. Are students that get better results satisfied students? Yes, but does it correlate? I would say, uh, uh, my guess would be yes, but a very weak one. You know, the government certainly thinks there is, because they think the NSS is dumbing down standards. um, But I suspect it's weaker than anybody believes. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I could answer that. And that's partly because it was very difficult to pass the question with all its different parts. But I would be very <laughs> interested. I'd be very interested to know the answer. Of course it doesn't. R squared is an unhealthy 0.0006. It's pretty much random. This puts a hole in another DFE data-driven policy wheeze. But in all honesty, that isn't all that difficult to do these days. The data is from OFS and is therefore England only. A few providers didn't meet the threshold to get NSS results. So where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, just before we do our final item, a couple of minutes just to tell you about an event we've got coming up uh, at Wonky. Uh, The latest in our Wonky at Home series, uh, The New Normal 2. Uh, the return to campus and what happens next. So what's all this about? Well, the return to campus is finally here and after a painful few months of planning for the worst, an untimely second peak of COVID-19 means the worst fears of university managers, staff and anxious parents might just be coming to pass. Uh, So we'd like you to join us for a wonky at home special. Following our event in May on the new normal, I'll be marking the new academic year reviewing how reopening campuses is going thinking through the local and national practical issues, tracking and tracing the big and small political implications of it all and asking what might be coming round the corner for your gold command working groups to start thinking about now. We'll ask how the start of term is going. We'll hear early reports from socially distanced teaching and social activities from around the UK from students, students unions and staff. Uh, We'll hear about local attempts at testing regimes, the latest in COVID campus fashion. Uh, And we'll ask, are students following university rules and government guidelines? How can we encourage them to? What happens to students confined to student accommodation in local or national lockdowns? Is the government about to remember uh, a sector it largely seemed to forget about for much of this year? And what does happen over Christmas. Wonky at home, the new normal too. Do join us. We'd love to see you there. Further details and how to sign up are on wonky.com forward slash events. Right, finally, the Adam Smith Institute has published a report all about students' unions and there's new polling on student voting intentions. But is there a link? Jenny, first, let's take us through the Adam Smith stuff. Okay, well, as you say, they've published a review of student unions um, and it concludes that they are inefficient, ineffective and dangerously extremist. Um, and it it sets out a, 
a, a very detailed proposal for significant reform of students' unions in the UK. Uh, there is some financial analysis in there. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotes in there as well. And I think it would be fair to say that uh, it's clear right from the first page that the analysis does come from a particular ideological position. <laughs> and, and, and Nick, before we get into this, what, 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 what have you published today on, on polling? Well, thank you. I, I can't personally take the credit because it's, it's youth sites data written up by my colleague, Rachel uh, Hewitt. But we've published the first um, fresh data on students' voting intentions, um, which suggests they do still back uh, the Labour Party in very large numbers. We've also got data in there on what they think of the party leaders. Uh, and uh, uh, Keir Starmer is um, not as popular as Jeremy Corbyn at his absolute height, but more popular than uh, Jeremy Corbyn was a year ago with a plus, um, uh, you know, pretty positive plus rating. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, has got a very uh, negative rating among students. Uh, the Tories do come second in political preferences among students, but um, the Greens and Lib Dems are sort of bumping along in a similar sort of place. So there's a huge gap between support for Labour, support for the other the other um, political parties. So if I was Keir Starmer reading this during the week of Labour's online conference, I'd actually be pretty chuffed that I was I was on course for where I wanted to be with students. And 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 and, and, and Nick, look, the, the the reason I've kind of you know cut and shut these two items together is that the allegation, obviously, is that things like cancel culture and snowflake students and students' unions with their extremist stuff is what is making students left wing you know I, I i said on the site this week there was a moment where your former boss david willits in 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 the noughties said that students are more likely to have a poster of boris johnson on their wall than che guevara now obviously this polling suggests that things have changed but what has changed is it that that that, that you know students are being indoctrinated or is it that you know, is something else going on I think it probably is um, largely something else going on. So, for example, uh, you know, there's an age effect, isn't there? And many students are young and many young people, whether they're students or not, uh, lean uh, left. Um, academics, typical of people in education, whether it's schools or other educational environments, typically lean left. I mean, my reading of the latest academic evidence, and we covered it in a report that we put out last week on, on whether students made much difference in the gen last few general elections, uh, is that actually it, it, there's a very thin evidence base for saying university makes people left wing. Uh, universities are full of young people, uh, full of people with public service duties in big cities. Uh, and, uh, you know, all those factors seem to uh, be associated with voting uh, left as well. So, um, uh, you know, I think there's lots of different things going on here. I, I personally think it's naive uh, if there are any you know, backbench uh, Tory MPs thinking the way to shore up the Tory vote is to limit uh, people's ability to go to higher education in future. Uh, I, I, I personally I personally think that's naive because people sitting in those red wall, now blue wall seats, um, you know, they have just as high aspiration levels as people living elsewhere. But sometimes uh, they've faced blockages in meeting their aspiration. And I think the idea that you uh, win support uh, in uh, poorer communities of the country by saying we're going to hold down university places, you know, and therefore, in other words, universities will continue to be full of uh, middle class uh, kids more than any other, um, you know, feels to me a pretty unappealing political message to send uh, for uh, any political party that wants to uh, look like it's helping people meet their aspirations. Jenny, just back on the AIS thing, I mean, I mean, lots of the content seems to be picking out kind of tales of 
Uh, and some of it, you know, not not true, and some of it newspaper stories rather than reality. But lots of it seemed to be tales of, you know, action on equality and diversity that we could easily see in universities themselves, in boardrooms, in broadcasters. <laughs> how, how odd are students' unions here? I don't know. Yes, that, that's something that struck me because, um, you know, some of the things that were mentioned are most certainly of interest to to the private sector, they're they're of interest to their stakeholders. You know things around uh, sustainability and recycling, things about equality and diversity, are you know seem to me to be fairly mainstream across all sorts of sectors. But I think the big thing for me about this report was just um, you know having worked to some degree with some student unions, done done projects with them, you know, been being uh, told things by them. I didn't really recognise students' unions from this report. It, it, I, I know other people have said this probably better than me, but there were some huge gaps in in the uh, description of the work of students' unions, all the, the welfare and well-being work they do, the campaigns they do locally just to, you know, things that would benefit all students, um, how they help students uphold their, their rights and, and so on. Um, not really mentioned in the report, apart from this idea that uh, students who are engaged in political campaigning shouldn't be offering welfare support, which, as far as I know, they don't do anyway. So it, it didn't seem to be a, a very complete description of the work of students' unions and I think had some you know, quite serious emissions. Uh, uh, you know, I think it's a terrible shame it was published the week it was. I guess they thought it could, you know, Freshers' Week, it would get extra attention. But it's a terrible shame because we have new executive groups on student unions up and down the country working blooming hard to put on as good Freshers' Weeks as they can. Uh, you know, they're young, they're inexperienced, but they're doing... Uh, an absolutely brilliant job very uh, often look I, I'm not someone who thinks everything student unions do is 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 good I, I think um, you know it's not surprising the media chase down some of the you know silly examples of, of bans that student unions have tried to implement but I think the problem the authors of this report have done is they've been bamboozled by those headlines uh, and have forgotten the really good stuff student unions do and I, I see it I'm a governor of two different universities and without breaking confidences of, of private governor meetings all i can say is i you know i see the presidents of student unions uh adding a huge amount to the way their institutions are governed in a very very valuable way and and you know there are two answers to uh, uh the weaknesses of student unions one is you know to massively rip them apart and restructure them the way this report is recommending the other is actually to have a deep and structured conversation with them about how they can be better and that might need more resources as well, by the way, because often student unions are limited in what they do because of the resources uh, they've got. Um, lots of digs of the NUS uh, in this report. But I mean, you know, the, I don't know, the Adam Smith Institute is meant to believe in freedom. And if student unions want to uh, collectively join together in a national way, um, you know, it'd be very odd to very odd to stop them or try to restrict them from doing so. Yeah, I did that. I did find that a little bit ironic, actually, because one of the the whole premises of of the report was that students' rights are under threat. But then it goes on to to say in quite a lot of detail how students should organise themselves. But I, I I do agree with you, Nick, that that you know the every organisation or group of organisations really benefits from having a mirror held up to them. I think, um, but just just the some of the the I guess weaknesses of this report that that we've we've mentioned means that 
uh, you know, any any valid criticisms are likely to be dismissed, and it, it maybe doesn't do what it set out to do, which is to, to improve. Well, well, I also thought it missed out some of the softer stuff. So, to be completely mm. frank, I, I doubt I'd be. Uh, sitting here talking to you this morning if I wasn't involved hadn't been involved in student uh, politics myself um, I can think of uh, people including one person who rose to be president of the NUS who who, who said um, you know getting involved in student union politics was the thing that gave her a sense of belonging stopped her feeling lonely you know and actually get there's another role here it's all to do with the non-academic part of student life and giving people experiences and opportunities and opening their eyes to the world and student unions do that for very uh, many people as well as providing a, an environment for socializing uh, you know and and and, and uh, you know all the other things they do so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget so you can subscribe to the podcast automatically uh, just search for the wonky show on apple podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to nick jenny and everyone at team wonky for making it happen and until next week stay wonky Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.